given to us eternal life. His life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. He who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we open the word of truth this morning, we need to make sure that we are indeed prepared for worship through the study of God's word. And we do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give anyone the opportunity to make sure that they're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to proceed with the study of God's Word. So let us begin with prayer. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Your Word is the most incredible asset we have that the Almighty Infinite... The Almighty Infinite God of the universe has communicated His specific will to us, that we can understand it in all of its magnitude, and all of its complexity, and that we can learn how to live in such a way that it honors and glorifies You throughout all eternity. Now, Father, as we study Your Word, we pray that You would help us to understand the things that we look at, to see how they relate to our lives, that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. And we are going to continue the discourse of the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10. We have to remind ourselves a little bit of the context of this particular passage. Because everything that Jesus says in John 10, at least down to verse 21 is to explain the events of chapter 9. This is the Apostle John's standard procedure when he is writing. He tells us an event, a narrative, a story, certain events that took place, and then he comes in and he explains to us, or the Lord himself explains to us, their doctrinal significance. In John chapter 9, we had the healing of the blind man. This is Jesus is leaving the temple precinct. He encounters a blind man on the steps outside the temple. And here we have an overhead map of the layout of Jerusalem. It is in this area you have the temple facing east. Jesus had the encounter with the Pharisees in the courtyard out here, and then He left, probably went this way down through Solomon's portico, and is in this vicinity of the sheep gate. The sheep were kept, the brown area on the map here is the area of the city at the time of Christ. And then the sheep were kept out and pastured up along the hillside out here. And they were brought in here and, and they pinned them in various sheepfolds along this wall where they would be ready to be used in the temple services. And as Jesus departs after the confrontation with the blind man, he heals the blind man. The Pharisees then challenge this because it has taken place on the Sabbath in violation of their uh, petty, legalistic interpretation of the Mosaic Law. And the result of that is this uh, almost a trial where they quiz him on just what happened They don't believe he was ever blind. They bring his parents in as witnesses. They're afraid and intimidated by the Pharisees. And then, uh, after he confronts them or confounds their argument by saying, look, this is all I know. I was blind. Now I see. They reject his whole testimony. He leaves and goes back to Jesus. And it's at that point that Jesus so clearly... This is one of the few times in the Gospel that Jesus clearly presents the Gospel to someone. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is the 
call of the shepherd, our Lord the shepherd. This is the shepherd's cry. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responds, Lord, I believe, in verse 38. This is the context. And then Jesus begins to explain the significance of this by using the analogy of the shepherd. And we looked last time briefly at the background that it was standard operating procedure for shepherds in the ancient world to wander among their flocks continually and they would cry out with a peculiar cry unique to each shepherd, something like, Bido, Bido, Bido. And as they continually walked among their flocks, they would say this. And the flocks would get used to hearing it. And so when they would bring them into the city, they would store them in in sheepfolds. Now here is a picture of a sheepfold out in the wilderness. And they had various folds along the wall there, along outside the temple precincts. And the sheep were pinned there, and maybe three or four flocks would be brought in, and they would all be put in that same sheepfold. And then the shepherd would come back the next morning. He would bring them in at night, put them in there, leave a guard or porter there to watch them overnight to make sure nobody came to try to rustle the sheep or steal the sheep. And then he would come back the next morning, and all he would do is walk around the sheepfold, uttering this cry, Beto, 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 and then his sheep would follow him. The other sheep would ignore him, but his sheep would follow him out of the pen and out to pasture. Now, if he happened to be out in the wilderness or out in the desert, and all he had was the rock wall of the, uh, of the sheepfold out there, temporary sheepfold, there might not be a permanent gate. There were just the rock walls, much like we see in the countryside around here. And there wouldn't be a gate. There would just be the opening. And so at night, the shepherd... In, in the place of a gate, would lie down and sleep in the opening. So Jesus is going to shift the metaphor. It's very important if we're going to understand the interpretation of this passage to realize that Jesus is not pushing these analogies, these illustrations too far. This is one of the problems that people have in, in trying to interpret some of the parables and some of the analogies the Lord uses is they try to make every detail mean something doctrinally. And that is never the case. An analogy is simply that. It is comparable at certain points. And you have to read it and and understand what those points are and not try to make every single detail relate to something. And Jesus is going to shift the metaphor here. In the first six verses, which we studied last time, He compares himself to the shepherd. He talks about the the fact that, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. And here we are introduced to some of the major elements in this extended metaphor. You have thieves and robbers. You also have the shepherd. Now, the shepherd is analogous to the Lord Jesus Christ. The thieves and robbers are analogous to the Pharisees. And last time, we went through various passages in the Old Testament to show that this claim of Jesus to be the good shepherd is not simply a nice story brought on by the fact that he is now standing by the sheepfolds outside the temple. He is making a messianic claim And more than that, he is making a claim to deity. Remember the 23rd Psalm. It is the Lord who is my shepherd. So there is this identification in the Old Testament with Yahweh as the shepherd of Israel. There is an identification further with David and other kings and leaders as shepherds of God's people. And what Jesus is saying in this extended analogy is that the Pharisees are going to be illegitimate leaders and shepherds of the people. Why? Because they are leading them on the basis of religion, not on the basis of the grace principles of the Old Testament. Remember this as we define it. Religion is man doing the work, and then God is supposed to bless that. That is typical of every system of religion outside of Christianity, and sad to say, It is typical of many versions of Christianity. They are nothing more than religion where man is trying to gain God's approval through his own work, his own ritual, his own deeds. 
Christianity is God doing all the work. He does everything and man simply accepts it by faith and relies upon the completed work of Jesus Christ. Religion is based on works. Christianity is based on a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So Jesus is going to be condemning or is condemning the Pharisees as the illegitimate leaders and He is making a claim here that He is the only legitimate leader of the nation. And He is going to show by this illustration that the Pharisees have are not concerned about the sheep at all as illustrated by their behavior towards the blind man and yet it is Jesus who is displaying the proper role of the shepherd leader, the shepherd king of Israel by the way he treats the blind man. And we saw last time that one of the condemnations in the Old Testament of the false shepherds was that they ignored those who were sick, they ignored those who were blind, they ignored those who were the poor, and they were in it for their own benefit. And this is typical of religious leaders. They're operated by approbation lust. They're they're, uh, operating on the basis of power lust. And in many cases, they're operating on the basis of money lust and materialism lust. And Jesus is going to juxtapose His legitimate position as the Good Shepherd of Israel against the illegitimacy of the Pharisees. Now, having said what he said in the first six verses, or the first five verses, that the people will not follow the illegitimate shepherds, we read in verse 6, this figure of speech, that is, this analogy, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So now he's going to try to make things a little clearer, and in the process, He's going to shift the analogy just a little bit. Remember, he's standing there. There's a crowd around him. He's looking at the sheepfolds. And as the shepherds are either bringing their sheep in or picking their sheep up during the day to take them out to pasture, Jesus is referring to what they are doing right in front of them and using that to illustrate his role. Verse 7, Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, verily, verily, in the King James, in the Greek it's amen, amen, he is emphasizing a point. This is a point of doctrine that you need to pay attention to. I'm calling your attention to it. Listen. He says, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, one of the most important phrases in the entire Gospel of John is the phrase that is translated, I am. In the Greek, it looks like this. Ego, eimi. Ego is the first person singular pronoun for I, and eimi is the to be verb, the first person singular meaning to be. Literally translated, I am, but it has a greater significance than that. In the Old Testament, when, God, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God spoke with him, Moses said, What shall I tell the people you are called? Who are you? And God revealed to him his personal name, which is Yahweh. Written like this in the Hebrew, it's called the Sacred Tetragrammaton. In Hebrew, there are no consonants originally, or there were no consonants originally. There are only the four letters, the Tetragrammaton, and it's transliterated Y-H. W-H, and we supply the vowels, and we're fairly confident these are what they are, and it should be translated or pronounced Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. This is His personal name. It's not a generic name like Lord Adonai or God Elohim, but it is His personal name. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, it is pregnant with significance. And the Pharisees understand it, We saw in the uh, previous chapter, back in uh, 858, Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. And when he said that, the Pharisees realized he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be one with Yahweh. And they picked up stones to stone him, and he departed the temple. 
So when Jesus comes to this statement here in verse 7, he says, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So there is significance to his statement, I am. And there are several I am statements in the Gospel of John which we need to review. These tell us something about who Jesus Christ is and his character. If you understand the claims of Christ, you cannot fall prey to the typical response you find from some people that, well, Jesus was just a a good man, or Jesus was a, a religious teacher or religious innovator, or Jesus was just another rabbi. Because the Scriptures make it clear that Jesus claimed again and again to be God. In fact, at the culmination of these events down in verse 30, He is going to make it clear so that no one can avoid its implications. He will simply say, I and the Father are one. Jesus is claiming to have the same essence, the same attributes of eternal, infinite God. He is claiming to be undiminished deity. But let's look at these I Am statements. Point number one. In John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He makes this same claim also in John 6.48 and in John 6.51. So first he says, I am the bread of life, emphasizing nourishment, spiritual nourishment, the sole source of spiritual nourishment. Point number two, in John 8:12, again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is the theme of this entire section of the gospel. In John 8, 9, 10, 11, constantly John comes back to this point. He is illustrating to us what Jesus means as the light of the world. He is the only source of truth. He and He alone has the right to explain God to mankind. And His explanation will illuminate the darkness of sin in the human soul. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. 3. In John 8.24, Jesus said, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins... For unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Now, there's something interesting going on in the English translation of these three verses that I'm going to quote in this passage. Under this third point, we're going to look at John 8.24, John 8.28, and John 8.58. There are some other passages that do this same thing as well. But in the English you find this phrase, I am He. Yet He is the third person singular personal pronoun, autos. It's not found in any of these passages. There's about eight more places in the Gospel that's translated, I am He, but He is not found in the original. What Jesus is saying is, I I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. John 8.28, Jesus said, Therefore, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, not I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There is only one unmistakable conclusion. Jesus is claiming undiminished deity. This is the doctrine of the hypostatic union that was hammered out in the first three centuries of the church after the death of the last apostle. That Jesus was undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. This means that as undiminished deity, Jesus has all of the attributes of deity even though He willingly limited. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. It's not that He didn't have them, or He, re, or he left them behind when He was incarnated. It's that He had them, but He limited them. We've seen this a couple of times in Scripture. Sometimes you'll hear people teach that He left the omni-attributes behind. If He left one attribute behind, He was no longer full, undiminished deity. 
He just voluntarily restricted the independent use of His divine attributes. He was still omniscient. Remember back at the end of John chapter 2, we're told that many believed on Him, but He did not trust Himself to them. Why? Because He knew what was in their hearts. That's because He was undiminished deity and He had omniscience and He knew what people were thinking. He knew what was going on in the mind of the woman at the well when He spoke with her. And there are other examples that we've seen where He exercised His omniscience. On the Mount of Transfiguration, He revealed Himself in all of His glory in all of His omnipotence. So He didn't give these things up. He didn't lay them aside temporarily. He just restricted their independent use. As true humanity, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and therefore did not inherit a sin nature because the sin nature is passed on through the male. And because of the virgin birth, He is cut off from Adam. There's no inheritance of a sin nature. So He is born sinless And this is called the doctrine of impeccability. That Jesus is impeccable and remained impeccable on the cross. Because He was sinless humanity, He was therefore qualified to go to the cross, to die as our substitute, to die in our place. So the undiminished deity and the true humanity united together in one person forever is referred to as the hypostatic union. And this word, which is difficult for some people to remember, comes from a Greek word, hypostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. And hypostasis refers to the inner essence or quality of a person. So what you have is the, the term hypostatic union refers to the union of two essences or two natures. The nature of God and the nature of man. So that in Jesus Christ, there's one person, but there are two natures. One is undiminished deity, the other true humanity. That is the thrust of what Jesus is saying when He says, I am. Point number four, John 10:7. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. This is our current verse, and he repeats this again in verse 9. I am the door of the sheep. The fifth use, John 10:11, Our same passage, we might get there this morning. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's also repeated in verse 14. John 10, 11, and 14, I am the good shepherd. Sixth, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Notice the claim that Jesus is making there. It's a claim to exclusivity. He is claiming to be the only way. I am the resurrection and the life. No one else. And that you can have eternal life By faith alone in me. That is a phenomenal claim. But an even more profound claim is the next point, number 7. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Three things he claims. He claims to be the way. This is what we're going to see illustrated in this chapter. When he is the door... There is only one door into the sheepfold. There is only one way in. There is not a multitude of ways. See, all other world religions and liberal Christianity wants to say that all roads lead to God. Well, it's a completely illogical claim, number one, because if all roads lead to God, then these roads are mutually exclusive because the claims of some of the world religions contradict the claims of other world religions And the claims of all other world religions contradict the claims of Christianity that there's only one way. And what always aggravates me when I get in discussions with people who want to claim this is they're trying to force me into their concept that all religions lead to God. No. Let's be honest. Christianity makes a claim that all religions do not 
lead to God. And as soon as you start making a claim to exclusivity, that you have a handle on the truth, not because of who we are, because we're nothing, but because God has revealed His mind to man, because of that, we can know truth. We can know absolutes. There's a current controversy, at least it's a minor controversy, but it was raised on the news the other day, and I've been amazed at, at how many religious themes I've seen emphasized on the news since I've been up here that have at its core an anti-Christian bias. I mean, even in the South, in the Bible Belt, you, I, I don't remember seeing so many news shows that relate to something, related to what churches are doing. Every now and then you'll see something, but rarely, not as much as I've seen up here. But up here it's blatantly antagonistic. For example... Southern Baptists are always getting in trouble for this. I guess it's just because of their exposure. But the Southern Baptist Convention has announced that this year, and they do this every year, they announce a particular evangelistic target, a goal. And this year the target that they've announced is the evangelism of Jews. Now this is nothing new. Christians have been evangelizing Jews forever. In fact, dispensationalists, among whom we are, have always promoted evangelism of the Jews because we know that when Christ returns, there's going to be 144,000 right after the rapture that trust Christ as their Savior. 144,000 Jews that go out as evangelists during the tribulation. So there's always been a move among conservative dispensationalists to evangelize Jews because even if they don't respond now, we want to have the gospel in their hands so they can respond after the rapture. And this has given birth to... to, um, Many different organizations who are operated by the American Board of Missions to the Jews is run and operated by Jews. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum out in Southern California, who went to a seminary with Charlie Clough, whom we all know, um, and has Ariel Ministries. And there's many different, there's Jews for Jesus and many other different groups that are Jewish evangelistic organizations. And yet, as soon as the Southern Baptists announced that they're going to make it a particular goal of evangelism this year to take the gospel to Jews, it makes the evening news. And they go down, they interview a rabbi in Hartford, and he says, oh, you would think that by the end of the 20th century, we're just so much more advanced that we wouldn't do this. And I'm not ridiculing him. That's a typical response of liberalism that everybody has the right to their own view and it's intolerant to say that somebody else is wrong. That's, and remember, if you weren't here on the Wednesday nights when I went over postmodernism, then you better get those tapes. And if you're parents and you weren't here Wednesday night, you need to get that tape because that's going to deal with how this is displayed or, or promoted among children especially cartoons and different things like that. But in postmodernism, the great sin is intolerance. And intolerance is no longer, no longer does tolerance mean that you're going to give somebody the right to their own opinion and the freedom to disagree and the freedom to be wrong. But tolerance now means that you have to approve of, you don't have to simply accept what they believe, you have to approve of it as well. And if you don't approve and validate what somebody else believes, then you are now intolerant. And intolerance is the great social sin of our generation. So we need to be aware that as Christians who believe in exclusivity, that we are going to come under greater and greater attack from the surrounding culture when we go out and we say that you must, not just to Jews, but everyone, Jew, Gentile, Islamic, Asian, it doesn't matter. Every one of us, ourselves included, can only get to heaven, can only have a relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Jesus is the one who said this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And then the eighth claim, the eighth I am, is in John 15:1. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. This is repeated again in John 15, verse 5. Now, all these verses, utilizing the I am sayings, emphasize three things. First, Jesus is clearly identifying himself with God. He is claiming to be undiminished deity. This is found in John 4, other passages of John 4.26, John 6.20. 
John 6, 24, 28, and 58. Jesus does not want anyone to miss the point. So in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. No one can just back off and say, well, Jesus is just a good man. If Jesus is just a good man, then he was a liar. He was either self-deceived or he was intentionally deceiving people. But in either case, he is a liar and cannot be, by definition, a good man. Although the way people are redefining terms, have you noticed how many times somebody will speak of a criminal, somebody in prison, a murderer. I heard this of a murderer. They interviewed somebody on the news recently. There was his friend and said, but he's such a good person. Well, he may be a nice, friendly person, and you may enjoy his camaraderie, but, but if he's a murderer, he is by definition not a good person. See, we're calling bad good and good bad now, and we've completely uh, overturned our whole system of values. Point number two, Jesus is using some aspect of the creation to illustrate something about his character or God's plan for his life. For example, in John 6, 35 and 51, when he says, I am the bread of life, he is emphasizing the fact that he is the source the exclusive source of nourishment, spiritual nourishment for mankind. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every what? Every word. What does John 1.1 say? In the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus Christ. Put those things together. Jesus is making profound claims for Himself. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. Light refers to, also in Scripture, to uh, pure holiness and righteousness. So again, it's not only a claim to illumination, but is a claim to absolute perfection in John 8.12. John 10.7, He is the door, which indicates the only entrance into the spiritual life. In John 10.11, He is the shepherd, and that teaches us that He is the source of guidance, the source of protection for the believer. And then John 15.1, He is the vine. And just as the vine is the conduit for uh, nutrients from the soil to the fruit, it is Jesus who is the conduit. He is the one who nourishes us and produces fruit in our lives. So point number two, Jesus is either using some aspect of the creation to illustrate something about His character, or He's using these aspects of creation to illustrate something about God's plan for His life. And then point three, Jesus is saying something about His essence and His character, that He is the source of life. He is the resurrection. He is the truth. John eleven twenty five, and John fourteen six. Now, here in this verse, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am, He then shifts the analogy. In the previous six verses, He was the shepherd. Now He says, I am the door of the sheep. And many people just start getting confused at this point, but he is still, now he's talking about a function of the shepherd. The function of the shepherd is to lie down and protect the sheep as the doorway to keep them from just leaving and wandering off at night. So the doorway is that entrance. Now when you think about it, and you have a pen, we'll draw this rectangle here, here's the gate. Now, in a gate, a door has two sides. One is ingress, the entrance, and one is egress, the exit, going in. Now, Jesus is talking about the fact that He's the only way, the only entry point into eternal life. That is the basic point that He is making. The whole analogy is making this one point. I'm the only way into eternal life. And I am the only way to nourishment in the spiritual life. Because when you go out the door, you're going out to pasture. This is the feeding and nourishment of the believer in phase two, the spiritual life. Going in is phase one, salvation. Now, let's develop this a little further. Gives a general point in verse 7. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, what is he saying here? 
he is saying that all who came before me, and it's a very interesting phrase in the Greek, he uses the phrase, first of all, the nominative plural of pas. Pas is the word for all. P-A-S means all. It's a universal concept. It doesn't always mean every everyone. For example, when it says that every everyone all went out to hear John the Baptist, we can assume that not every single individual in Judea made the trek out in the wilderness to hear John. And in some passages it may mean majority, but in many other passages it is inclusive. And especially here because it is joined with the next phrase, which is a pronoun, hasoi, a masculine nominative plural, which means as many as. So it is translated here, all who came are as many as have come before me. Includes every single one who came before him who made a claim to shepherd or lead the people. It includes the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the false messiahs that came along claiming to be Messiah. Every single one of them. Jesus lumps them all together and says every one of them were illegitimate. They were thieves and robbers. Now we go back to 10.1. Remember, he is comparing his position as the legitimate shepherd in contrast to the illegitimacy of the, of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are called thieves and robbers. Why are they called thieves and robbers? Because they steal life from the people. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who provides life. But if somebody's teaching that you're saved through works, you're saved through morality, you're saved through ritual, you're saved through identification with a certain church, you're not going to be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And so if you're proclaiming a false gospel, then you are stealing life from people. And so they are thieves and they are robbers. He says, All who came before me are thieves, are robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now the sheep, as we have seen, refers to people like the blind man who are positive to God at God consciousness, and who are positive to the gospel and believe in Christ, accept Him as Messiah at gospel hearing. Now, you always run into people who make the objection that how can you claim that Jesus is the only way? What about all the people who never heard? And see, what happens is you should try to avoid answering that question. We always tend to get sucked in to false issues when we're witnessing to people. It's easy to do it. It happens to me all the time, and I'm sure you've experienced it as well, and you get frustrated with that. And and I find that as the years go by, I gradually learn a little more and a little more about how how to witness to people. But so often what happens when unbelievers challenge you with questions, they're wrong questions. And if you and the question itself is loaded with an assumption that is contrary to God's word. And when you legitimize the question, you're legitimizing the assumptions that underlie the question. And so when you answer the question, you've already lost your footing. It's like somebody asking you if you've stopped beating your wife. It's an illegitimate question. However you answer it, you're in trouble. See, what happens with us is we want to be, try to be so open and honest with unbelievers that we're going to, I'll, I'll, we want to be so helpful. I'll answer your questions. And we don't stop and say that's an illegitimate question because it's grounded on all kinds of assumptions that are false. For example, one of the false assumptions is that there are those who never heard, that wanted to hear. Now, how do we know that? We continually come up with discoveries that uh, indicate that the gospel went a whole lot further, a whole lot faster than we ever thought it did. Just two or three years ago, a discovery was made of a group of people in Sri Lanka that lived back up in the hills. 
that had a gospel tradition that traced their Christianity all the way back to the Apostle Thomas. And Thomas apparently visited them and gave them the gospel. They had no scripture, but they just had this oral tradition that had been passed on from generation to generation. Up to that point, nobody even knew these people existed, much less the fact that they had the gospel. There have been various other things that have been discovered in China, in India, up in uh, Slavic countries that indicate that the gospel made its way there before the apostles began to die off. So by within 20 years of the death of Christ, the gospel was spreading, as Luke claims in Acts, throughout the known world. Just because we have no historical evidence of it, or certain evidence of it, doesn't mean it didn't happen. So there's a hidden assumption there. Remember, God is omniscient, so He knows all the knowable, and He knows who would respond favorably to the gospel. God is also love, and He desires all men to be saved. God is omnipotent, so He is able to provide the necessary information to whomever desires to hear. Remember the story about the Ethiopian eunuch? He's on his way back to Ethiopia, and the Holy Spirit miraculously transported Philip from Judea to wherever this Ethiopian was, gave him the gospel, and then he was back home, just like that. So God made sure that the gospel got out in those early years. And then God is veracity. His word is true. So either he is right, in which case none will be lost, and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, or he's wrong and we trash the whole thing. This is a major battle. There are some people, many people in in fact, who think that, well, God must have an alternate way of saving these people who haven't heard. But what the Scripture teaches, and what we've seen illustrated with the blind man, is that every person is given volition. And at some point, we become God-conscious. We become aware that there is a God. This is not aware that there might be a God. According to Romans chapter 1, 19 through 21, there is enough evidence of the existence of God in the heavens to hold every man accountable. Now, there's another interesting trap we fall into. Can you prove God exists? Now, if you answer that question, you're buying into the assumption of the unbeliever that there isn't enough evidence that God exists. So he has to have more evidence. But you see, the Scripture says that the invisible attributes of God are made evident and they are known within them so that they are without excuse. In other words, every unbeliever, every atheist, no matter how dogmatic they are, no matter how insistent they are that they don't have any evidence that God exists, God says... They not only have more than enough evidence, but at some point they knew He existed. And if they reject that with negative volition, then they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's not that this unbeliever doesn't have enough evidence. He has more than enough evidence, but he's suppressing it in unrighteousness, negative volition. But in God consciousness, there are those that go positive. Like the blind man. He wanted to know who God was. And eventually God is going to get the gospel to him. When the gospel came to him, he had a second opportunity to exercise his volition. And he exercised it positively. And he believed Jesus was the Messiah. And so at that point, he was saved. Now, there are many other people who are positive to God at God consciousness. But they go negative at gospel hearing. There are other people that go negative to God at God consciousness and they jump into religion. So just because somebody is very religious doesn't mean that they're positive to God at all. The Pharisees, in fact, Jesus claimed, back we saw this in John 7 and in John 8, Jesus kept confronting them with the fact that they didn't know God and they didn't want to know God. And yet, seven times a day they would pray. Three times a day they would go to the temple. They were very religious but they were negative to God at God consciousness. So one assumption is that there are those who never heard. Another assumption is that God is really not capable. And there is an assumption there that rejects the omniscience and faithfulness of God. 
And then the third assumption underlying the idea that God's going to save people some other way if they didn't hear is that sin is not really as serious a problem as the Bible claims that it is. You see, that's a dangerous assumption. If you think that one person can get into heaven without trusting Christ as their Savior, that is with the exception of infants and those who do not have the mental ability to understand the gospel, they're saved automatically. If a child dies before the age of accountability, he's saved. If someone dies and they don't have the mental capacity, either from brain damage, birth defects, or whatever, where they can't understand the gospel, they're not held accountable for the gospel. But if you're you're old enough to understand the gospel and you reject, or you're negative to God of God consciousness, and you're out in the boondock somewhere, God's not going to save you on some other basis. To assert that is to reject everything the Bible says about sin and its consequences and why Jesus went to the cross. Certain assumptions behind this idea that Jesus can't be the only way that are in complete contradiction to everything taught in the Scriptures. Now, Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. And this, of course, portrays the Pharisees as the illegitimate shepherds of Israel. And he says, but the sheep did not hear them. That is, like the blind man, they didn't listen. Now, they might have listened for a while. They might give it lip service. But in their heart, they're positive to God. And they are going to respond when they hear the gospel. My sheep did not hear them. Then he repeats the analogy, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, that's entering into the spiritual life, he shall be saved. If is a third class condition. If you were here in the first hour, I explained the different ways in which a condition works in the Greek. In English, we only have one way of expressing conditions, if. Greek uses four different ways. One is if, and we're going to assume it to be true. Second is if, we'll assume it It's not true. Third is pure contingency. We're not sure one way or the other. And the fourth class condition is if I wish it were true, but it's not. Here we have a third class condition which expresses pure contingency. I am the door. If anyone enters, maybe you will, maybe you will not. Salvation is up to your volition. How you respond to the gospel. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame the, the geography of your birth. You can't blame your school teachers. You can't blame anyone but yourself. The issue is your volition. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. Future tense. So that's talking about phase three salvation. If you trust Christ as your Savior, phase one, you enter into the spiritual life, phase two, and ultimately you will be saved, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, phase three. Now, the pasturing has to do with phase two, salvation, feeding. Like a newborn babe desires the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. We have to be fed spiritual food, spiritual sustenance in order to grow spiritually. You're born a spiritual infant at the moment of regeneration and you can only be nourished by Bible doctrine from the Word of God. I am the door. If anyone enters through me... He shall be saved. This is a clear promise of salvation. And shall go in and out and find pasture. That's the second stage. Entering in is phase one salvation. Going in and out is just a picture of the sheep. Every day they went out to pasture and came back in at night. Out to pasture, come back in. It's coming to Bible class on a regular basis in order to get fed. He shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Then he's going to shift the analogy and go to the next level. The thief. Who's the thief? The religious leaders. The thief comes only to steal and kill. Religious leaders come only to steal and kill. Religion is the devil's greatest tool and religion is destructive to mankind. Religion has never produced freedom. Religion has never produced a society that advocates freedom. Only biblical Christianity has a basis to understand true freedom, and that is in Jesus Christ. 
The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Religion is the worst thing that you can get involved in. Religion, it constantly seeks to control you and to tell you, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. In contrast, Jesus said, I came that they might have life. That's phase one. That they might have life. That's eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should, have, should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to give life. This is the first point. Religion cannot give life. Secondly, He said that they might have it abundantly. That is the result of pasturing. The abundant life is not yours simply because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You will have eternal life, never-ending existence with God in heaven. But if you want to have the abundant life, which has to do with capacity for life, for blessing, and for happiness, that only becomes because there is Bible doctrine in your soul and you have learned to think as Christ thinks and you are applying doctrine to all the issues of life. Then and only then are we going to have the abundant life that Christ gives us. It is the result of the pasture concept feeding on the Word of God. The thief, religion comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. I remember when I read this verse in college, and by that time I had gotten away from doctrine for a while, and, and I went to college in a small town in East Texas, and about the only thing there were, were small town denominational groups, and they were all very religious, and I didn't like any of the options, so I wasn't going to, to church anywhere. And I kept thinking, oh, and that was my only exposure. I tried to go to Campus Crusade and a few of the other organizations, campus organizations, and you just kept getting hit with this legalistic gospel, this legalistic doctrine. And I got to where that was all I ever heard. And I thought, man, Christianity just sounds like all it wants to do is, is control your life and take away any, any pleasure, any joy in life. And I read this verse and I said, Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came to give us abundant life so that we could have joy. It just shows the danger and the horror of legalism as it tries to control your life. Verse 11. Jesus now shifts to his second category. He says, I am the shepherd. So he has gone from the shepherd in verses 1 through 6 to the door in verses 7 through 11. And now he is back to talking about the fact that he is the good shepherd. He is called the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He is the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. And he is the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. So one of his basic characteristics in terms of his role in God's plan is to be a shepherd. So let's take a minute. There's a couple of important doctrines in this verse. And we'll just get as far as the first clause, I am the good shepherd. So let's look at the doctrine of the shepherd. The doctrine of the shepherd. The believer is said to be a sheep. Now sheep are, are helpless creatures and they're entirely dependent upon the shepherd for everything. Sheep are entirely dependent upon the shepherd for everything everything in their life. So the shepherd-sheep analogy is a good analogy for the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to the believer. Point number one, a sheep has no sense of direction. He doesn't know where to go. Unlike a cat or a dog, he can get lost in his own meadow. He can probably get lost in his sheepfold and not even find the door to get out. So if a sheep is out in the meadow, he's not going to even find his way home unless the shepherd is leading it. Same thing with the believer. The believer cannot guide himself. You and I do not even know what the right questions are or what the right issues are in life without the guidance of the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is called the truth. Capital T. Jesus is the truth because that's the only truth we have. Everything else is a guess. We can't even ask the right questions. Jesus tells us what are the legitimate questions, what are the illegitimate questions, what is the way to go? Our guidance comes exclusively from the shepherd who is the eternal Lagos of God, the one who reveals God to us, and he has revealed himself to us 
in the written Word of God, which is called the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Point number two. A sheep cannot cleanse himself. Other animals may wash themselves, lick themselves, do something to cleanse themselves, but sheep will remain filthy indefinitely unless the shepherd cleanses him. Now, some people say they use woolite in order to get them ready for the show. I don't know. Do you use woolite? I had a friend of mine tell me she used woolite to cleanse the, the, uh, the sheep that she was showing, but... But sheep need to be cleansed by the shepherd. They need to be washed thoroughly. This is true of believers. They are cleansed of all pre-salvation sins at the cross by the work of Christ on the cross, which is the basis for the cleansing for all post-salvation sins. So all sins after salvation are cleansed by the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Point number three. A sheep is helpless when injured. Whenever you go through adversity, whenever you go through turmoil, whenever you go through suffering, you are injured. And a hurt sheep will die unless tended by the shepherd, not by the psychiatrist. So as we are injured by the various adversities and problems in life, only the Lord can provide the necessary protection and cure. He is our shepherd, the psalmist says, I shall not want. Now, we lose the meaning of that. That means I have no needs. That's what he's saying. Because God has provided everything for me. What we need to learn is how to tap into everything He's provided because the promise of Scripture is that if He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, then we don't need to look elsewhere other than the Word of God to be able to handle any and every situation in life. Point number four. A sheep cannot protect himself. He's too slow to run away from his attackers. He's not able to camouflage himself to hide from his enemies. Nor does he have any natural defenses. He doesn't have vicious teeth or claws in which to protect himself. The only protection for the sheep is the shepherd. There is no way that you and I can protect ourselves in spiritual warfare. Our only protection is the defensive posture within Christ. That's the whole point of the armor in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a defensive armor. Even the use of the sword as portrayed there is defensive, not offensive. The battle is the Lord's. It is not up to us to try to go out and win the victory. We just rest in what God has provided for us. But that presupposes that we know what God has provided for us. Point number five, a sheep cannot find food or water on his own. Most animals can smell water. A sheep depends upon the shepherd to lead him to water. If he is not led to proper food, he will eat poisonous weeds and die. The Lord determines in the Scripture. That's our feeding. He determines what we need. He has told us everything. That means that when we come up with questions and the answers aren't in the Scripture, then maybe we shouldn't be asking the question. The Lord has determined what the proper food is. And sometimes we'd rather live on a diet of chocolate sodas and sundaes rather than the nourishment of God's Word. Not that chocolate's wrong. I just use that for an illustration. Those of you who know me know that I would rather live on a diet of chocolate sodas and milkshakes than just about anything else. But that is not nourishing. Sheep cannot find food or water in his own, completely dependent on the shepherd to provide the right food. And the shepherd determines what is legitimate and what is illegitimate food. Six, sheep are easily frightened and panicked. They'll panic at nothing. All of a sudden, some old ewe will just plant her feet and let out a bleat. and The whole flock is in a state of panic and there's nothing there. Same thing with believers. We get all upset over inconsequential or non-existent things. And the shepherd, as the shepherd calms the sheep with songs in the night, our shepherd calms us with the truth of Bible doctrine, the truth of His Word. And then seventh, a sheep's wool does not belong to the sheep. Sheep produce wool, but the shepherd owns it. The shepherd benefits from the production. So that all bona fide spiritual production in the life of the believer 
belongs to the Lord who is glorified forever. It is the Lord who, by means of the Holy Spirit, provides for all of our production in the spiritual life. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then in verse 11b, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And next week we'll come back to look at that aspect in terms of substitutionary atonement of Christ and what that means for the believer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word, to be impressed with its absolute veracity, and to be impressed with who our Lord is and all that He has provided for us. He is our shepherd. We want for nothing. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without faith, without hope, without a certainty of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. They don't have to join the church. They don't have to uh, commit their life to Christ. They don't have to walk an aisle. They don't have to do any of these things that are sometimes said to be necessary. The Scripture makes it clear. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not moral reformation. It is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one committed to us. We are not the ones who commit to Him. We simply accept what He did on the cross. It's a free gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would remind us of these things that we might be encouraged by all that our Lord does for us as our Good Shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.